Chapter Three of He Fell in Love with His Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. He Fell in Love with His Wife by Edward P. Rowe. Chapter Three Mrs. Mumpson Negotiates and Yields. Mr. Weeks, on his return home, dropped all diplomacy in dealing with the question at issue. Cynthia, he said in his own vernacular, the end has come so far as me and my folks are concerned. I never expect to visit you, and while I'm master of the house, no more visits will be received. But I hain't taken any such stand on considerately, he concluded. I've given up the whole forenoon to secure you a better chance of living than visiting around. If you go to Holcroft's, you'll have to do some work, and so will your girl but he'll hire someone to help you, and so you won't have to hurt yourself. Your trump card will be to hook him and marry him before he finds you out. To do this, you'll have to see to the house and dairy, and bestir yourself for a time at least. He's pretty desperate off for lack of women folks to look after indoor matters, but he'll sell out and clear out before he'll keep a woman, much less marry her, if she does nothing but talk. Now remember, you've got a chance which you won't get again for Holcroft not only owns his farm, but has a snug sum in the bank. So you had better get your things together and go right over while he's in the mood. When Mrs. Mumpson reached the blank wall of the inevitable, she yielded, and not before. She saw that the week's mine was worked out completely, and she knew that this exhaustion was about equally true of all similar mines, which had been bored until they would yield no further returns but Mr. Weeks soon found that he could not carry out his summary measures. The widow was bent on negotiations and binding agreements. In a stiff, cramped hand, she wrote to Holcroft in regard to the amount of salary he would be willing to pay, intimating that one burdened with such responsibilities as she was expected to assume ought to be compensated proportionally. Weeks groaned as he dispatched his son on horseback with this first epistle and Holcroft groaned as he read it, not on account of its marvellous spelling and construction, but by reason of the vista of perplexities and trouble it opened to his boding mind. But he named on half a sheet of paper as large a sum as he felt it possible to pay, and leave any chance for himself, then affixed his signature and sent it back by the messenger. The widow Mumpson wished to talk over this first point between the high contracting powers indefinitely, but Mr. Weeks remarked cynically, It's double what I thought he'd offer, and you're lucky to have it in black and white. Now that everything's settled, Timothy will hitch up and take you and Jane up there at once. But Mrs. Mumpson now began to insist upon writing another letter in regard to her domestic status and that of her child. They could not think of being looked upon as servants. She also wished to be assured that a girl would be hired to help her, that she should have all the church privileges to which she had been accustomed, and the right to visit and entertain her friends, which meant every farmer's wife and all the maiden sisters in Oakville. And then, she continued, there are always little perquisites which a housekeeper has a right to look for. Mr. Weeks irritably put a period to this phase of diplomacy by saying, Well, well, Cynthia, the stage will be along in a couple of hours, We'll put you and your things aboard, and you can go on with what you call your negotiations at Cousin Abraham's. I can tell you one thing, though. If you write any such letter to Holcroft, 
You'll never hear from him again. Compelled to give up all these preliminaries, but inwardly resolving to gain each point by a nagging persistence of which she was a mistress, she finally declared that she must have writings about one thing which couldn't be left to any man's changeful mind. He must agree to give me the monthly salary he names for at least a year. Weeks thought a moment, and then, with a shrewd twinkle in his eyes, admitted, It would be a good thing to have Holcroft's name to such an agreement. Yes, you might try that on, but you're taking a risk. If you were not so penny-wise and pound-foolish, you'd go at once and manage to get him to take you for better or worse. You misjudge me, Cousin Lemuel, replied the widow, bridling and rocking violently. If there's any such taking to be done, he must get me to take him. Well, well, write your letter about a year's engagement. That'll settle you for a twelve-month at least. Mrs. Mumpson again began the slow, laborious construction of a letter in which she dwelt upon the uncertainties of life, her duty to her offspring, and the evils of vicissitude. A stable home is woman's chief desire, she concluded, and you will surely agree to pay me the salary you have said for a year. When Holcroft read this second epistle, he so far yielded to his first impulse that he half tore the sheet, then paused irresolutely. After a few moments he went to the door and looked out upon his acres. It'll soon be ploughing and planting time, he thought. I guess I can stand her. At least I can try it for three months. I'd like to turn a few more furrows on the old place. And his face softened and grew wistful as he looked at the bare, frost-bound fields. Suddenly it darkened and grew stern as he muttered, but I'll put my hand to no more paper with that Weeks tribe. He strode to the stable, saying to Timothy Weeks as he passed, I'll answer this letter in person. Away cantered Timothy, and soon caused a flutter of expectancy in the Weeks household by announcing that old Holcroft looked black as a thundercloud and was coming himself. I tell you what tis, Cynthia, it's the turn of a hare with you now, growled Weeks. Unless you agree to whatever Holcroft says, you haven't the ghost of a chance. The widow felt that a crisis had indeed come. Cousin Abraham's was the next place in the order of visitation, but her last experience there left her in painful doubt as to a future reception. Therefore she tied on a new cap, smoothed her apron, and rocked with unwanted rapidity. It'll be according to the order of Providence. Oh, pshaw, interrupted Cousin Lemuel. It'll be according to whether you've got any sense or not. Mrs. Weeks had been in a pitiable state of mind all day. She saw that her husband had reached the limit of his endurance, that he had virtually already flown off the handle. But to have her own kin actually bundled out of the house, what would people say? Acceptance of Holcroft's terms, whatever they might be, was the only way out of the awkward predicament, and so she began in a wheedling tone, now, Cousin Cynthia, as Lemuel says, you've got a first-rate chance. Holcroft's had an awful time with women, and he'll be glad enough to do well by anyone who does fairly well by him. Everybody says he's well off, and once you're fairly there and get things in your own hands, there's no telling what may happen. He'll get a girl to help you, and Jane's big enough now to do a good deal. Why, you'll be the same as keeping house like the rest of us. Further discussion was cut short by the arrival of the victim. He stood awkwardly in the door of the week's sitting-room for a moment, seemingly at a loss how to state his case. 
Mr. and Mrs. Weeks now resolved to appear neutral and allow the farmer to make his terms. Then, like other superior powers in the background, they proposed to exert a pressure on their relative and do a little coercing. But the widow's course promised at first to relieve them of all further effort. She suddenly seemed to become aware of Holcroft's presence, sprang up, and gave him her hand very cordially. "'I'm glad to see you, sir,' she began. "'It's very considerate of you to come for me. I can get ready in short order, and as for Jane, she's never a bit of trouble.' Sit down, sir, and make yourself to home while I get our things together and put on my bonnet. And she was about to hasten from the room. She, too, had been compelled to see that Holcroft's farmhouse was the only certain refuge left, and while she had rocked and waited, the thought had come into her scheming mind. I've stipulated to stay a year, and if he says nothing against it, it's a bargain which I can manage to keep him to in spite of himself, even if I don't marry him. But the straightforward farmer was not to be caught in such a trap. He had come himself to say certain words, and he would say them. He quietly, therefore, stood in the door and said, Wait a moment, Mrs. Mumpson. It's best to have a plain understanding in all matters of business. When I've done, you may conclude not to go with me, for I want to say to you what I said this morning to your cousin, Lemuel Weeks. I'm glad he and his wife are now present as witnesses. I'm a plain man and all I want is to make a living off the farm I've been brought up on. I'll get a girl to help you with the work. Between you, I'll expect it to be done in a way that the dairy will yield a fair profit. We'll try and see how we get on for three months and not a year. I'll not bind myself longer than three months. Of course, if you manage well, I'll be glad to have this plain business arrangement go on as long as possible, but it's all a matter of business. If I can't make my farm pay, I'm going to sell or rent and leave these parts. Oh, certainly, certainly, Mr. Holcroft. You take a very sensible view of affairs. I hope you will find that I will do all that I agree to, and a great deal more. I'm a little afraid of the night air and the inclement season, and so will hasten to get myself and my child ready. And she passed quickly out. Weeks put his hand to his mouth to conceal a grin, as he thought, she hasn't agreed to do anything that I know on, Still, she's right. She'll do a sight more than he expects, but it won't be just what he expects. Mrs. Weeks followed her relative to expedite matters, and it must be confessed that the gathering of Mrs. Mumpson's belongings was no heavy task. A small hair trunk that had come down from the remote past held her own and her child's wardrobe and represented all their worldly possessions. Mr. Weeks, much pleased at the turn of affairs, became very affable but confined his remarks chiefly to the weather, while Holcroft, who had an uneasy sense of being overreached in some undetected way, was abstracted and laconic. He was soon on the road home, however, with Mrs. Mumpson and Jane. Cousin Lemuel's last whispered charge was, Now, for mercy's sake, do keep your tongue still and your hands busy. Whatever possibilities there may be for the Ethiopian or the leopard, there was no hope that Mrs. Mumpson would materially change any of her characteristics. The chief reason was that she had no desire to change. A more self-complacent person did not exist in Oakville. Good traits in other people did not interest her. They were insipid. They lacked a certain pungency which a dash of evil imparts. 
and in the course of her minute investigations she had discerned or surmised so much that was reprehensible that she had come to regard herself as singularly free from sins of omission and commission. "'What have I done?' she would ask in her self-communings. The question implied so much truth of a certain kind that all her relatives were in gall and bitterness as they remembered the weary months during which she had rocked idly at their firesides. With her, talking was as much of a necessity as breathing, but during the ride to the hillside farm she, in a sense, held her breath, for a keen March wind was blowing. She was so quiet that Holcroft grew hopeful, not realizing that the checked flow of words must have freer course later on. A cloudy twilight was deepening fast when they reached the dwelling. Holcroft's market wagon served for the general purposes of conveyance, and he drove as near as possible to the kitchen door. Descending from the front seat, which he had occupied alone, he turned and offered his hand to assist the widow to alight, but she nervously poised herself on the edge of the vehicle and seemed to be afraid to venture. The wind fluttered her scanty draperies, causing her to appear like a bird of prey about to swoop down upon the unprotected man. "'I'm afraid to jump so far,' she began. "'There's the step, Mrs. Mumpson. But I can't see it. Would you mind lifting me down?' He impatiently took her by the arms, which seemed in his grasp like the rounds of a chair, and put her on the ground. Oh, she exclaimed in gushing tones, there's nothing to equal the strong arms of a man. He hastily lifted out her daughter and said, You had better hurry into the fire. I'll be back in a few minutes. And he led his horses down to the barn, blanketed and tied them. When he returned, he saw two dusky figures standing by the front door, which led to the little hall separating the kitchen from the parlor. "'Bless me!' he exclaimed. "'You haven't been standing here all this time. It's merely due to a little oversight. The door is locked, you see, and—' But the kitchen door is not locked. "'Well, it didn't seem quite natural for us to enter the dwelling on the occasion of our first arrival by the kitchen entrance, and—' Holcroft, with a grim look, strode through the kitchen and unlocked the door. Ah, exclaimed the widow, I feel as if I was coming home. Enter, Jane, my dear. I'm sure the place will soon cease to be strange to you, for the home feeling is rapidly acquired when— Just wait a minute, please, said Holcroft, and I'll light the lamp and a candle. This he did with the deftness of a man accustomed to help himself, then led the way to the upper room, which was to be her sleeping apartment. Placing the candle on the bureau, he forestalled Mrs. Mumpson by saying— I'll freshen up the fire in the kitchen, and lay out the ham, eggs, coffee, and other materials for supper. Then I must go out and unharness and do my night work. Make yourselves to home. You'll soon be able to find everything. And he hastened away. It would not be their fault if they were not soon able to find everything. Mrs. Mumpson's first act was to take the candle and survey the room in every nook and corner. She sighed when she found the closet and bureau drawers empty. Then she examined the quantity and texture of the bedding of the couch on which she was to repose, as she would express herself. Jane followed her around on tiptoe, doing just what her mother did, but was silent. At last they shivered in the fireless apartment, drew off their scanty wraps, and went down to the kitchen. Mrs. Mumpson instinctively looked around for a rocking chair, and as none was visible, she hastened to the parlor, and holding the candle aloft, surveyed this apartment. Jane followed in her wake as before, but at last ventured to suggest, Mother, 
Mr. Holcroft'll be in soon and want his supper. I suppose he'll want a great many things, replied Mrs. Mumpson with dignity. But he can't expect a lady of my connections to fly around like a common servant. It is but natural, in coming to a new abode, that I should wish to know something of that abode. There should have been a hired girl here ready to receive and get supper for us. Since there is not one to receive us, bring that rocking-chair, my dear, and I will direct you how to proceed. The child did as she was told, and her mother was soon rocking on the snuggest side of the kitchen stove, interspersing her rather bewildering orders with various reflections and surmises. Sketching the child, Jane, is a sad task, and pity would lead us to soften every touch if this could be done in truthfulness. She was but twelve years of age, yet there was scarcely a trace of childhood left in her colorless face. Stealthy and cat-like in all her movements, she gave the impression that she could not do the commonest thing except in a sly, cowering manner. Her small, greenish-gray eyes appeared to be growing nearer together with the lease of time, and their indirect, furtive glances suggested that they had hardly, if ever, seen looks of frank affection bent upon her. She had early learned, on the round of visits with her mother, that so far from being welcome, she was scarcely tolerated, and she reminded one of a stray cat that comes to a dwelling and seeks to maintain existence there in a lurking, deprecatory manner. Her kindred recognized this feline trait, for they were accustomed to remark, She's always snooping around. She could scarcely do otherwise, poor child. There had seemed no place for her at any of the firesides. She haunted halls and passageways, sat in dusky corners, and kept her meager little form out of sight as much as possible. She was the last one helped to table when she was permitted to come at all, and so had learned to watch like a cat, and when people's backs were turned, to snatch something, carry it off, and devour it in secret. Detected in these little pilferings, to which she was almost driven, she was regarded as even a greater nuisance than her mother. The latter was much too preoccupied to give her child attention. Ensconced in a rocking-chair in the best room, and always in full tide of talk if there was anyone present, she rarely seemed to think where Jane was or what she was doing. The rounds of visitation gave the child no chance to go to school, so her developing mind had little other pabulum than what her mother supplied so freely. She was acquiring the same consuming curiosity, with the redeeming feature that she did not talk. Listening in unsuspected places, she heard much that was said about her mother and herself, and the pathetic part of this experience was that she had never known enough of kindness to be wounded. She was only made to feel more fully how precarious was her foothold in her transient abiding place, and therefore was rendered more furtive, sly, and distant in order to secure toleration by keeping out of everyone's way. In her prowlings, however, she managed to learn and understand all that was going on even better than her mother, who, becoming aware of this fact, was acquiring the habit of putting her through a whispered cross-questioning when they retired for the night. It would be hard to imagine a child beginning life under more unfavorable auspices, and still harder to predict the outcome. In the course of her close watchfulness, she had observed how many of the domestic labors had been performed, and she would have helped more in the various households if she had been given a chance. But the housewives had not regarded her as sufficiently honest to be trusted in the pantries, and also found that, if there was a semblance of return for such hospitality as they extended, Mrs. Mumpson would remain indefinitely. 
Moreover, the homely, silent child made the women nervous, just as her mother irritated the men, and they did not want her around. Thus she had come to be the specter of a child, knowing little of the good in the world and as much of the evil as she could understand. She now displayed, however, more sense than her mother. The habit of close scrutiny had made it clear that Holcroft would not long endure genteel airs and inefficiency, and that something must be done to keep this shelter. She did her best to get supper, with the aid given from the rocking chair, and at last broke out sharply, "'You must get up and help me. He'll turn us out of doors if we don't have supper ready when he comes in.' Spurred by fear of such a dire possibility, Mrs. Mumpson was bustling around when Holcroft entered. "'We'll soon be ready,' she gushed. "'We'll soon place our evening repast upon the table.' "'Very well,' was the brief reply, as he passed up the stairs with the small hair-trunk on his shoulder. End of chapter 3